There's a lot that could impress you about the all-new Honda Prologue EV. True, it's got class-leading passenger space and clean, thoughtful design and intuitive technology. But what really sets the Prologue apart from the competition is that it's more than an EV. It's a Honda. Honda, the power of dreams. Visit honda.com slash prologue to learn more. Another Monday, another chance to succeed. That's what we're all about here on I Could Never Be Here on the Popcorn Talk Network. I, I think today of the quote from the movie Hitch that he says, begin every day as if it were on purpose. So Mondays are a day when a lot of people say, oh, we're back on Mondays again. The weekend's over. Well, I just hate Mondays. Don't wake up with the attitude of hate Mondays. Wake up with the opportunity to say, man, this is great. I get to live here, be able to be healthy, be able to succeed, and be able to chase my dreams. And then you will just have a much better foot going forward and be able to achieve the success and to be able to achieve your dreams. And I know today's guest is going to be so inspirational of telling you exactly the same thing. I'm so excited to talk with her. But before we get to our guest, we always start with some advice for a better life. And today that talks about leadership. And leadership really is doing everything that you would ask of someone else before you ask them. A true leader does everything that they want you to do first, and then they do more than that before they would ever ask you to do it. So if you're a leader, don't just have someone do something. Do that thing first. Show them how it's done. Go above and beyond before you actually ask them to do it, because if you do that, you'll gain their respect, but you'll also gain the compassion that true leaders seek and true leaders need to be able to achieve success. Today's guest certainly has the respect, has the compassion, has so much more. She's one of the nation's leading voices in the media. She's a co-host on CBS's Face the Truth, as well as a regular on CNN, on HLN, Dr. Phil, Good Morning America, so many other programs. Her story is incredible. She is certainly the hardest worker almost in any room that she ever gets in. Please welcome Ariva Martin. Ariva, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, absolutely, Michael. I'm thrilled to be here. I loved your statement about leadership. I agree with you 110%. Have you uh, had instances like that where you're trying to lead people and you really realize that, you know, if you do those things first, that you gain their respect and you gain that compassion? Oh, absolutely. I'm a serial entrepreneur and I've started lots of ventures And most of them I started from scratch and I was everything. Uh, My law firm, I did the filing, I did the typing, I did the accounting, I wrote the checks, I I did the legal work. And all of those jobs gave me an insight, you know, as I started to grow my practice and hire other people, I had an opportunity to really know what the jobs were. It gave me an opportunity to know the kinds of people that I wanted to hire and it made a difference when folks, you know, saw that no job was too big or, you know, mm-hmm. beneath me as the, the owner or the, you know, the partner in the law firm. So I think most leaders have a very similar attitude about, you know, their organizations or their companies that they can do all the jobs. And I think that inspires and motivates employees. Absolutely. I think it also, as a leader, it keeps you grounded. I mean, having to do all those things, you know what you're asking. You're not just saying, oh, do do this. This is easy. You're saying, go do this. I know the challenge that you're facing. Here's maybe how you can do it. And again, as you grow, like you're saying, you're doing the filing. You're doing, you know, people who have swept the floors as a, as a janitor. I mean, you know what the work is, and that keeps you grounded moving forward when you achieve success. I totally agree. And it gives you an appreciation for your employees or, you know, members of your organization from the top to the bottom. You understand that each person that comes into your organization is important and you value that person. You value the jobs that they do. 
And I, I think that's how you create a positive work environment. I know that's how you create loyalty uh, in an organization. Absolutely. Well, we're going to talk a, a lot about uh, your incredible career, your incredible rise to success. I want to be able to shout you out uh, on social media if you want to be able to follow Ariva after the show uh, at Ariva Martin on Instagram at or on uh, at Ariva Martin on Twitter as well as on Facebook. We're certainly happy to be here every week on the Popcorn Talk at the Popcorn Talk Network on Instagram and on Twitter, and you can follow me at the Only MC on Instagram and on Twitter. You are so busy, and I say this in in the best way of you're on so many different shows, you're still involved in law, you're talking with people, you're visiting different places to be able to make a difference. Does it feel like that, that you're always run, 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 or that how you get energy every day? No, it doesn't, Mike. Well, you know, I get asked this question all the time. You know, people say, my God, you know, you you have a family, you run a nonprofit, you run a law firm, you're a talk show host, uh, you're an author, uh, you know, how do you keep all the balls in the air? And, and what I have to say to people is, you know, when you love what you do, it just doesn't feel like work. I get up every morning excited about, you know, what I'm going to do on any given day. If I'm going to be, you know, talking about really critical issues that impact millions of people in this country, I feel honored to be able to do that, to, to be able to lend my voice to important topics like immigration or, you know, the media. There's a lot that could impress you about the all-new Honda Prologue EV. True, it's got class-leading passenger space and clean, thoughtful design and intuitive technology. But what really sets the Prologue apart from the competition is that it's more than an EV. It's a Honda. Honda, the power of dreams. Visit honda.com slash prologue to learn more. To movement or issues of race and politics. Mm -hmm. So I don't feel stressed by that. I feel honored by that. And the nonprofit that I started, I started for kids who have autism, primarily kids who live in poor and underserved communities. So there's nothing more rewarding than helping a parent uh, get resources for a child. Uh, so I get to do all of these, what I call really fun things. They are work. <laughs> you know, they, <laughs> they do involve, uh, you know, remuneration. Uh, they have lots of responsibilities that come with them. But I just feel great about Again, having an opportunity to do so many things. Yeah, you don't have to do any of these things. You get to do these things. I know that's, uh, that's an attitude that uh, even Kevin and Maria, uh, Popcorn Talks founders, talked about this weekend. I was with them in a seminar, and you don't have to do them. You get to do them. Yeah, and if you're lucky, you get to do things that you know wake you up in the morning with a smile, that inspire you, uh, that challenge you. And so I, I say to people that have you know great careers, or they get to combine their passion with you know their the way they earn a living. That's really an opportunity that that you should cherish because a lot of people don't have those opportunities. A lot of people mm-hmm. go to jobs every day that they hate. They absolutely, you know, abhor, Mm -hmm. but they have to do it because they have to feed their families. They have to, you know, pay their bills. Uh, So when you are like me and you get to do what you love and make a living at it, no complaints. No, 100%. And like you're saying, you got to do some of those jobs to be able to grind it out. And when you're first starting, and I know to take it way back, you know, you grew up in public housing in St. Louis. And it certainly wasn't the the best conditions. And I, I think I read you actually went to work with your godmother when you were really young who was a, a janitor, right? Absolutely. No silver spoon, although <laughs> I you know, graduated top of my class at Harvard Law School. Uh, didn't start there. Didn't have any legacy. You know, parents or grandparents that, that paved the way and opened the door for me to get into that Ivy League law school. And I learned a lot of invaluable lessons, uh, 
emptying trash cans and working uh, with my godmother, who was a janitor. She cleaned uh, offices of lawyers and accountants and CEOs in, in big office buildings in a suburb outside of St. Louis. Uh, and at the time I was doing it, I didn't know that I was learning the value of hard work, uh, being reliable, uh, you know, the, the valuable lesson of doing the best job, no matter what it is. You know, sometimes people start in jobs and, you know, they're, they're menial tasks, you know, they're at the bottom of the totem pole. And it says, you know, this doesn't matter. But watching my godmother, I saw the kind of care and attention she paid even to the most menial tasks. So, uh, you know, if you can't handle the small things, you, you really won't be able to handle, you know, the big opportunities that come your way. No, that's definitely the case. Definitely the case. How old were you at that time? Oh, boy, I was like fifth grade, sixth grade, wow. seventh grade. Uh, and the treat was, you know, if you helped Godmother get done with her work, you know, quickly, we could go and, and get a treat, like at a fast food restaurant, <laughs> Burger King or McDonald's or something. <laughs> So there was incentive there, you know, I was incentivized to help because there was some, you know, Big Mac at the end of the, the tunnel. So was it easy uh, at that point to to kind of see it as almost like a, a white collar and blue collar? And like you're saying, you're in these offices, of these CEOs, but you're not doing that kind of work. Is that easy for some people to kind of to, to say, oh, I, I'm I can't be that because I'm doing this. And how how did you approach that differently? You know, I think as a kid, you know, I just knew that this, the neighborhood that we drove to, the offices that we went to, that it just was very different than where I was growing up. You know, I couldn't appreciate what that difference was, uh, but I knew that there was something different. I, I knew as we, you know, drove to the offices that the neighborhoods would change as we would leave my neighborhood and enter into these very wealthy suburbs where these offices were. So, you know, I think as a kid, which is why it's so important, you know, early childhood education and some of the things that I get to work on in my nonprofit, you know, kids are like sponges. They're taking things in. They don't necessarily know when or, you know, how they're going to use that information. But exposure uh, to certain things for young kids is so important because some of those lessons they learn as kids stay with them throughout their entire lives. And, and clearly the ones I learned with my godmother were lasting. I, I mm -hmm. tell people all the time when I got to the University of Chicago, you know, I didn't feel like I was quite ready for the rigors of, of an institution that's, you know, such a prestigious and rigorous academic institution. But what I did know was that I had this incredible work ethic. And I knew from growing up with my godmother and my grandmother that no one could outwork me, that, that I just had the focus and ability to, you know, grind it out. And that, that skill set was incredibly helpful and useful to me uh, as I competed with valedictorians and, you know, top students all around the country. Challenges certainly make you grow. It's amazing because when you're in those challenges, like you hate it, you hate it so much. And then I feel like there's so many times in my life when now when I'm going through maybe a challenge and I say, well, this isn't as bad as the challenge I faced five years ago, or this isn't as bad as the challenge I faced seven years ago. And I know I made it through that and I can make it through this. Yeah, that's called resilience, Michael. You hit it, the nail on the head. You know, we have to look at the experiences that we've been through and remind ourselves, you know what, I came through that. I'm still standing. You know, I, I came out on the other side of that a better person, you know, a smarter person, a, a more mm -hmm. disciplined person, a, a happier person, a more prosperous person, uh, you know, whatever the case may be. And, and I think constantly reminding ourselves of, of that those are the kinds of things that help us get through challenging times. Well, you got to be able to use, I'm sure, a lot of the lessons that you use growing up in your nonprofit and in your works with people. 
Oh, absolutely. I think it's what makes my, it's what helps me be successful in the nonprofit. I've raised millions of dollars uh, for autism and autism related causes. I've had an opportunity to work on key pieces of legislation for the state of California and be a part of advisory groups uh, that have been uh, advising uh, on national policies for individuals with disabilities. And growing up in that community, it was called the Car Square Village where I lived, you know, knowing the struggles of people in my community, knowing some of the obstacles and challenges that they faced, you know, that informs the work that I do. That that keeps me uh, grounded and it helps me uh, as I'm helping to craft policies uh, and, you know, making decisions that are going to impact the lives of people. I have those real life lived experiences mm-hmm. that, that help me, uh, you know, in making some of the best decisions I think that I can make to help others uh, that live in communities like the one I grew up in. Did you see living up in that community as an obstacle? I mean, people from the outside look at it and say, oh, man, I mean, even reading through your you know, biography. And it's like, man, look what you did. And then you went to the University of Chicago and then graduated top of your class at Harvard Law. Like, did you see when you were in that time that those were obstacles? You know, Michael, I think as kids, as long as you're loved, and I had a lot of love in my household. I had, you know, uh, relatives and family members, extended family members who really, really loved me. Uh, no, I don't think you know. I would say for me, I didn't really understand the gravity of the differences or the gravity of what I'll call my my impoverished neighborhood until I went to my high school. I went to an all-girls Catholic high school in a really ritzy part of St. Louis. Uh, School's called Rosati Kane. It's in a part of town called the Central West End. And and it was when I went to that high school, I think, that I really had the, the the rude awakening that there were really, really wealthy people that lived in St. Louis. I rode a bus and the bus route took me into really wealthy communities where people had homes like the sizes of museums. Uh, So that was my first like, hmm, these people have a lot more than what you have. (laughs) So, but as a little kid growing up in my community, no, I, you know, you just, you had friends, you, you, you know, you you had holidays, you, you, you know, you did things that were like normal kids do. So it wasn't until I, I, like I said, went to that high school that I think I really understood the stark differences. Yeah, as a kid, it's never about how much you have. It's not until you're, you kind of, you realize how much is in the world. Sometimes the, the happiest people are the simplest. They have the simplest things. Oh, absolutely. Things. And, and you can be happy and, you know. We all know that material things, you know, don't correlate with happiness. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's it's not the, the size of, of what you have. It's the quality. And so, like I said, I was really blessed and fortunate to have just a, a really, you know, wonderful people who loved me and supported me and pushed me and encouraged me and were great role models in their own right. You know, they weren't super educated. They didn't have a bunch of, you know, letters behind their names. They didn't have fancy jobs or fancy titles, but they had a lot of heart mm-hmm. and they had good values. And, and, you know, that can take you a long way. You attended the University of Chicago a couple hours away. Obviously, there's other universities in St. Louis. Why go to Chicago? And was that a challenge for you to move far away to go to school? You know, I always wanted to uh, leave St. Louis. I, I didn't want to go too far. So Chicago was like that perfect big city. Five hours away, four or five hours away from St. Louis. I had some relatives that actually lived in the Chicago area. So for me, it was like going someplace where I had something that was familiar in terms of family members, but still being close enough to home. But the university uh, was a very, very 
shocking, startling, uh, difficult experience for me my first year. Uh, hardly any African-American students uh, in my class at the university. Uh, most of the students were there to be pre-med students or uh, study the sciences. So it wasn't your typical kind of college experience where there were fraternities and sororities and you know lots of college parties going on. This was a really serious you know, academic institution mm -hmm. where folks, you know, were coming because they wanted to be Nobel Peace Prize winners and they knew it at 16 years old. <laughs> so yeah, you were you saw the difference, I think. And unfortunately, I think you were bullied at college. Yeah, I had a really uh, horrible experience. I, I call it shaming. That's what we would call it today. You know, in, in modern uh, culture, pop culture today, we definitely would call it shaming. I had a student, an upperclassman. Uh, who really mocked and ridiculed the way that I talk. And it caused me to literally stop talking for a whole semester, which is why it's kind of funny now that I make <laughs> my living as a talk show host. And I'm a, you know, a, a political and legal commentator. And I'm a public speaker. Uh, and I was a trial lawyer for many, many years. Mm -hmm. or I still am a trial lawyer. So uh, it's it's odd for me, given that the first three, four months of my college experience, I didn't talk very much. I, I, I talked only when necessary in very short sentences. And, uh, you know, I, I went and remade my speech. Uh, and I look back on that experience. And now, you know, again, today, the act of doing that would, would be, I, I wouldn't be the victim. The the woman that did that would be villainized because, mm -hmm. you know, we just were so much more conscious and, mm -hmm. and cognizant of how we judge people today, I think. So uh, I, I was just, I don't know if you saw this, the parent trap, the movie, uh, Mary the Baxter, uh, you know, the, the girlfriend, the love interest of the father yes. parent trap. They there's been all over the internet these stories about how there's this whole campaign to support her now because what uh, in the in the movie you know she was like this horrible side chick that was trying <laughs> to take the father away from his two precious twins and you know prevent him from getting back with their mother but now there's this whole movement of hey Meredith wasn't so bad she was a a single you know working woman that knew what she wanted and she was aggressive and that's something to applaud not something to you know ridicule so it's just interesting when we look back on on things even like a movie you know how we reframe uh you know characters and how we reframe our experiences that's incredible i had had no idea about that yeah, look, I, I, it, look it up it, it's just it's fascinating going back looking at movies that were popular and looking at the characters and like hmm you know, what do we really think of that person, yeah. you know, looking at them through today's lenses? Yeah, and it's 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 important to be able to learn from that. I guess it, yeah, I don't want to, you know, sometimes you don't want to judge because it was a different time, I think. And, like, you're like, oh, I can't judge them because maybe they, you know, the actors, they were told what to do. And I think even, you know, uh, Michael Scott was the same way with The Office. He's like, we could never make The Office right now. Because, you know, what we said was not appropriate and certain things that yes. we did. It, it's like you learn from that. You don't judge Michael Scott and everyone else for being in the office. But it is important to be able to learn and grow from all that. Yeah, because, you know, as we evolve, when we know better, we do better. So lots of references. I, I went to a play and it was the 20th anniversary of this play. And the play had so many homophobic references. I mean, it was just riddled with these really nasty, mm -hmm. uh, you know, anti-gay slurs, really. 
And I just cringe through the whole play, like, oh my God, was there a period in our history when this kind of conduct, this language was acceptable? Uh, and it was just kind of shocking to me that that, that was okay. Wow. You know, that, so yeah, it, it's interesting how, you know, the how we've evolved as a community mm -hmm. and, and things that, that were intolerable or things that we tolerated now are completely intolerable. Mm -hmm. Thank goodness. Yeah. Thank goodness. We've, uh, we've changed it. I think people learn. <laughs> yeah. I think people, yeah. Evolved and learned that even if you don't agree, just love. Like, you don't have to agree with everyone, I think, but just to show love and to show respect and compassion of what we're talking about, yes. it's just, that's so important. You know, you don't have to Absolutely. put up walls and do all that kind of stuff. It's unnecessary. You're talking about, you, you redid your speech, you, you, you obviously you evolved, and you seem like the person who, you look at something and you grow from it, and you're, it, it's a challenge. How do you have that attitude of just looking at something and saying, this is not an obstacle, this is not a, a challenge, this is something that's an opportunity? Well, I think for me, Michael, I think of myself as a lifelong learner. Although I have two degrees, you know, one an advanced degree, I, I never stop learning. I, I read, uh, you know, I'm an avid reader. I read seven, eight newspapers a day throughout the day, all day, every wow. day. Uh, and I know what I know and I know what I don't know. And so uh, when I face challenges, you know, I'm always trying to figure out what what is this? What am I going to learn from this? What, what are the lessons that I can take away from this situation? And, and that's how I try to face a challenge. You know, what's the solution? And then what are the lessons that, that I can learn? And I think, you know, if people think of themselves as, as not knowing it all, because no matter how smart you are and, you know, how much information you have or access to information, there's just always something new to learn. So I'm a voracious learner. So I'm, 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 I ask a lot of questions. I'm super inquisitive. <laughs> Uh, and I love learning. Was there a financial challenge trying to go to the University of Chicago and then go to Harvard? I mean, were you working while you were in school? Were you grinding? Oh, God, yeah. I've worked since 12 years old. Uh, so what I, kind I can't of jobs? think of a time when I have not worked. Yeah, I worked my way through college. I worked, uh, I, I was a cook at a uh, professor's house in college. I would drive to their house and prepare their meals. I would do grocery shopping for a professor. I was a research assistant. Uh, I, I worked in the financial aid office at the college. I, I had a summer job every year uh, since high school and definitely throughout college. When I got to law school, I was a writing tutor uh, in law school. So I worked in law school. I, I've always had a job, sometimes multiple jobs at one time. <laughs> so I, I don't know if you can grow up in the Midwest and, and not be, well, I guess you can, but... <laughs> Hey, I'm from Wisconsin. I know what you're talking about. grow up learning to work. I mean, jobs are, are key, and mm -hmm. you know, it's it's an essential part of what we learn very early on. No, it's very true. I grew up in Wisconsin, so I grew okay, up in a farming. Well, you know. I, I grew up in a farming town. I grew up baling hay on a, on our uh, property when I was younger. Yeah, it's it's awesome. Like I look back yeah. now, and I'm so thankful. Oh my God, so many great lessons. You know, just thinking back on Saturdays. You know, you would get up, you had house, you had chores, mm -hmm. you had work to do. Yeah. Uh, so uh, those lessons, again, while it's happening, you're not necessarily happy about it. <laughs> you may think your parents are being, you know, too strict, but uh, those are really, you know, they carry you far, particularly, you know, in this age where I think the focus on people, you know, quality times, just reading an article about young men, and although the unemployment rate is at, you know, historical lows, it the article focused on men between the ages of 18 and 34, 
and said many of them are not in the workforce. Uh, they didn't go to college. Some of the uh, you know manufacturing and other blue collar jobs aren't as readily available. Mm. And then some guys just don't want a job that they don't like. Yep. <laughs> and so there's this. I'll sit it out until I can mm-hmm. find something that you know suits me. And you know that that's kind of a new phenomenon that you could just wait and get the job that makes you happy versus you know, get the job that pays your bills, get the job that pays your bills that allows you to chase your dreams, to be able Absolutely. to financially you support build that yourself. Foundation. Yeah. I mean, I worked in, uh, I worked three summers in factories, made windows and then made doors. And yep. it's, it's the attitude. And I think, and I'll ask you that question. What do you think is the difference from people who have that attitude of, I'm going to do whatever it takes. And I'm not just going to sit around, sit around, and wait for the right opportunity. I'm going to prepare for the right opportunity. I think some of it obviously has to do with, you know, your upbringing, you know, what you saw in your home, uh, you know, what what models you had, whether it was your parents or teachers or, you know, outside relatives, extended family members, friends in your, your neighborhood. You know, what did you see? You know, what what kinds of conversations were you having with the adults that you grew up around? Uh, I know for me, you know, I'm constantly talking to whether it's people in my law firm or my nonprofit or even the advice I just give to people, you know, online or through my book, Make It Rain. It's, you know, I'm always telling people, look, you know, we all have to start someplace and that someplace may not be the most glamorous position. But if you look at any successful person, I mean, from Beyonce to Jay-Z, I mean, you can't think of of any, I can't, of any successful person, you know, short of someone that was born, Mm -hmm. you know, into a a family that was already incredibly wealthy. But most self-made people started, you know, at the bottom Mm -hmm. and they worked either, you know, like thankless jobs, you know, whether, you know, they worked long hours, like you said, in a factory or maybe they waited tables or they, you know, were a doorman at an apartment building or something. Rarely is it, you know, that first opportunity you get, you know, the, the right opportunity or the perfect opportunity. Mm-hmm. But I, I, what I find so fascinating about self-made people is the tenacity that they yes. had, you know, the stick to itness, the the uh, the ability to not give up and to take each opportunity and build on that opportunity and just keep growing. Yeah, certainly. That is definitely the case. And that's why I, I, you know, started this show is to be able to share those stories because people see someone who's successful and they think, well, that person had an easy path. Oh, that person knew someone. Oh, they had money. It was easy for them. But no matter how successful you are, even no matter if you start out wealthy, at some point, I bet you wanted to quit. At some point, some time in your life, you were hitting that wall and hitting that obstacle and saying, is this worth it? Like maybe I'll yeah. just maybe I'll just settle for this easy thing. Did you ever have uh, a time like that, a, an obstacle that man, it just seemed almost impossible to get through, and you just had to continue pushing forward? Uh, yeah, I mean, I've changed careers, and my career has evolved on so many different levels, you know, on numerous occasions, and at each evolution, it's almost like starting over. So. Uh, and every time I had to start over, you know, you face obstacles, you face challenges. As I was starting my career in the media, I, I had a chance to meet Samuel Jackson maybe about a year ago. And we were at a party together. And I just walked up to him and I said, Sam, you don't know me. Uh, you know, I introduced myself. I says, but you have been my role model. And he's like, what? Wow. what are you talking about? I said, I can't turn on a movie. I don't care how old it is, how new it is and see you. 
And I see you in movies in these tiny little parts. So as I was starting out in media, I would get, you know, requests to do interviews or, you know, whatever. And, and some of them were in remote places or, or, you know, really tiny stations or, you know, somebody's new internet radio show or something. Mm -hmm. And as I thought about turning it down, I, I told him, I says, I would think of Sam Jackson. What would he do? And I, my mind says, Sam would take the job. Wow. And that just inspired me. And, and I think of that, you know, because sometimes when you're starting out, whether you're a comedian or an actress or a singer, you know, you may be playing before audiences of two, <laughs> 10, you know, 20 people. And, you know, that, that's not where you want to be. But if you have the attitude, I'm not going to play that venue because it's small. You know, you may never get to the big venues. Mm -hmm. and I heard Kevin Hart do an interview once where he talked about the, the gazillion comedy clubs that he's played in all over the country to tiny little audiences and remote locations. Uh, but how he did that and would, you know, sometimes be in 100, 200 clubs in any given period, you know, to get to be playing arenas with 50,000 people. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I try to draw from other people's life, lives, you know, their stories, even if I don't know them. And I tell people that in my book, Make It Rain, look, you can have a mentor nowadays because of the internet and social media. Your mentor can be someone you've never met, but you can follow their career. You can follow their life. You can see, you know, what they do and, you know, let that be your inspiration. So Sam Jackson is, is, is one of my... <laughs> Uh, folks that inspires me just because, you know, at one point he just worked. He was just a guy that wanted to be a working actor and he, mm -hmm. he took the part, small and large. What did he say when you told him that? What was his... He, he chuckled. Response? He laughed. He was, it was like a comical moment. He's like, really? And I said, yes. And, you know, and then we went on to have a, a pleasant conversation. He's a very nice guy, very mm -hmm. receptive, uh, Great guy. And so, you know, and I look at him now. Now he's doing commercials. Yeah. I mean, the guy just doesn't stop. His his career just keeps evolving. And he's played all kinds of characters, you know, from crack addicts to, you know, super cops to, mm -hmm. you know, uh, in, in superhero movies. I mean, he's just done it all. He's done it all. But, and he has that, uh, I guess, that aura of people. He's such a likable guy because of that reason. Because he's like, like yeah, guy. I'll do this. Yeah, I'll do this. And that reputation gets around. And when you're performing in front of, even if it's five, ten people, or you're doing a show that goes out to just a couple people, you never know who those couple people are. Oh, my God. You never, And you never know where that break or mm -hmm. that opportunity is going to come from. Uh, and, you know, that's a part of what inspired me. I have a friend, too. She's a professional singer. And I've seen her perform, you know, in really big, like she sang for President Obama at one of his inauguration wow. parties. But I've also seen her play small private parties in people's homes where, you know, there's 30, 40 people. And she didn't give them, you know, the performance like I'm in your, you know, your living room with 30 people. She gave them the performance like she was in Carnegie Hall before thousands of Amazing. people. So I think, you know, that's a common thread with successful people. They understand you, you give your best 110 percent no matter what the situation uh, you know, you don't give people less than simply because you may be in a venue or, you know, be in a situation that's less than what you would want it to be at that time. Absolutely. Would you consider Dr. Phil to be one of your big breaks that really got you out there? 
Oh, absolutely. I, I say that all the time. I, I've written it in a book. I say it. Yes, my lucky break in the media came uh, because I went on the Dr. Phil show and I wasn't invited individually. I took some clients. I was representing some clients and their story, their lawsuit that I had filed on their behalf was of interest to the show. And so the show wanted to interview my clients. Mm-hmm. And I came on with them just as their attorney. And the interview with my clients and, and, and me went so well that the producer of the show asked me if I would stick around and do a second show totally unrelated to my clients. Uh, and it was on a panel with uh, Bishop T.D. Jakes and I think it was uh, Reverend Run and uh, maybe Hill Harper, or a couple of other you know activists. I can't mm-hmm. quite remember everyone. It was like a panel of four guys. And they didn't have a female voice on this panel. And they said, hey, you know, you were so great in that first show. Would you stick around? I'm like, of course. I didn't know the topic. I didn't know what they were doing. I'd never been on a panel show like that. Uh, Some of the people they told me were on the panel were were folks I, you know, had a great deal of respect and Mm -hmm. admiration for and wouldn't think that I would be on a panel with them. And they gave me some materials to read. And I had maybe 45 minutes, an hour break to read this material and be able to articulate, formulate, and then articulate an opinion and, you know, converse with these esteemed panelists and Dr. Phil. What's going through your mind? very different than my first show, because my first show, he was just asking me questions about the legal case, stuff I, you know, I knew in my sleep, I could mm-hmm. do it with my eyes closed. But the second show, I didn't know so well, but I was, I, I did it and the show went really well. And the producer says, hey, you know, both shows went great. We'd love you to come back if you have cases you want to bring on or, you know, when we have stories where we need an expert. And that was the beginning of that relationship. What was going through your mind during that 45 minute period? Did you oh, feel rushed? Were you scared? I yeah. Was, I, I was frightened in the most like I'm going to make a fool out of myself. <laughs> I'm going to embarrass myself. Uh, I, I, you know, what do you do on a panel like this? I didn't know the logistics of it, you know, and the producers like, here's this stuff to, re-. I had to formulate an opinion. And the story was dog, the bounty hunter, you know, he has an <laughs> A&E reality show and he had used the N word on some audio tapes, uh, oh, relating wow. to his daughter's boyfriend who was African-American and the show was on, should his reality show be canceled wow. because of his use of the N-word. And, you know, I, I didn't think I even, I don't think I even knew the story. If I knew it, I definitely hadn't formulated any opinion about it. Uh, so, yeah, it, it was, I was, I was nervous as all get out because I, you know, like I said, I was, the, the people on the panel obviously had spent time with this. They had an opinion about mm-hmm. it. You know, uh, some of them were activists who were very big in, you know, what I'll call race politics. Uh, so that was intimidating to me. Do and you... at the time, I was not a commentator. I was a lawyer who represented some clients. Uh, I was a civil rights lawyer. And I was there to talk about the laws that were broken by this particular school district involving my clients. And that's very different when you are a lawyer uh, versus a commentator. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, part of what you do as a commentator is you learn to synthesize huge amounts of material into sound bites. Mm-hmm. Lawyers don't talk in sound bites in court. We talk in long verbose sentences. <laughs> you know, 
The more words, the better. The bigger the words, the better. That's not TV. You know, TV doesn't want legalese. TV wants fifth grade talk. And they want it fast. They want it quick. So uh, it's a myth that just because you're a lawyer or, you know, an expert in something that you can be, you know, a great commentator. Now, you can become one through practice and, you know, Mm -hmm. training, et cetera. But I had to become one in 45 minutes. So, <laughs> Have you ever rewatched that segment? I have not. That's a good idea. Really? I, I can find it. I know exactly what I had on. I know exactly who the producer was. So there are parts of it that I have a very vivid memory of. I have a very vivid memory of getting this stack of articles that the producer printed out for me to read. And I did learn something quickly in that. I learned that I was good at taking large amounts of information and quickly memorizing enough of the information so that I could then, you know, articulate in a way as an expert would. So that, that I did walk away from that thinking, wow, you got like this stack, you had 45 minutes and a highlighter. <laughs> and I was able to go out and talk about you know, the history of the use of the N-word, how it had been used by other celebrities, things that had happened in terms of shows with respect to other celebrities, you know, the impact that the use of that word has on communities of color. I mean, so we were getting really deep. This is a deep <laughs> conversation. Well, so, throw, throwback Thursday uh, coming up. We'll, uh, we'll have to follow maybe you and post something on social media about you, you watch that for the first time in several years and just, I don't know, seeing your response. I think that'd be interesting. Absolutely. Did Good you, idea. Did you realize at that point that that would, you know, be uh, the start of a major trajectory and change in your career? Was that what you were hoping for going in? Was Did that ever th- thought cross your mind? No, not at all. I, I went there. I was passionate about this lawsuit that I had filed for these clients. I had just started my autism nonprofit. Uh, I was excited to talk about these clients who had autistic kids who had been abused in the classroom. So I was excited to raise awareness about autism. I was excited to be, you know, helping families understand what their rights were with respect to school districts. I had no sense of I'm going on here and this is going to be the start of a new career for me. Now, I'll tell you what happened when that show aired. I was inundated with calls, emails, uh, you know, social media posts from people saying they watched the show and how much they had learned and how grateful they wow. were. And I did at that moment have an epiphany that, wow, you know, I can represent families in lawsuits one at a time, win lawsuits, help individual families. But there's something more powerful about the media and being able to reach millions of people in, you know, one 45 minute, one hour show mm-hmm. that was very different. And so that did start me to thinking about how I could use the media uh, to really advance causes that I cared about. Like Mm -hmm. I said, civil rights, autism, uh, you know, disability rights. Those are things that have always been really important to me. So uh, it it wasn't being on the I didn't go to the show with the hopes that this would lead to that career. I feel like like success is maybe a balance of being open to change when things come your way, being open to adapting and changing, but also, you know, kind of staying in your own lane sometimes and saying, no, I really believe this. I'm going to keep pushing. Can you talk about maybe how you see those two things comparing and contrasting of, you know, I I, I need to be able to be open, but I also want to make sure not to 
stray too far from what I feel like are my core beliefs and my core values and passions? Yeah, and I would add to that as it relates to a definition of success preparation. Because when when those opportunities come your way that you want to be malleable, adaptable, and you know agile in terms of being able to take advantage of them, there, there has to be a level of preparation there. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't have been able to you know make that transition to go on that show if I wasn't already you know a skilled trial lawyer that was used to reading you know large amounts of material and, you know, organizing that material and being able to spit it back out to you. You know, I wouldn't have been able to do that. So I had already done the hard work in terms of, you know, college and law school and practicing as an attorney. So when an opportunity comes your way, you you definitely have to be prepared because it was like a one shot deal. Now, had I gone on to that show and bombed, I never <laughs> would have heard from the field people again. That would have been it. So, you know, when you get your lucky shot, when you get that opportunity, you know, whether you're going, you know, you've been asked to speak at an event or you've been, you know, asked to be a part of of some organization or you get some big job, you've got to bring with it some skills. You got to, you know, you've got to be ready uh, and have a level of preparation to take advantage of those opportunities, which is why this kind of takes us full circle to the beginning of our conversation about taking those jobs that may not necessarily be the job of your dream, but, you know, taking a job and, and being on a job and going deep into a particular, uh, you know, uh, niche, you're building some skills, you're building, you know, work ethic, you're building stamina, all of that. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that's the level of preparation that can serve you when you do get your big break. Absolutely. That is 100 percent true. Do you think everything that you're involved in now, obviously you're running a nonprofit, you're you know on air several times. Is there something that you could face that you think you'd be unprepared for? Or is that just a mindset that you have of like, nope, I, I can be prepared for anything and I, I'm ready for anything? Or is there anything that feels daunting or would be scary to you? Well, I think new things are always scary to all of us. I, I feel like I'm the kind of personality that I don't I don't get frightened by new challenges. So if someone presents me with a challenge, I, I'm going to try to rise to the occasion. Now, whether I, you know, nail it or fall flat on my face, I'm not going to be the person that won't try. I, I don't get easily intimidated. I, I wanted to, uh, I started running and my running coach said, hey, let's do this half marathon. Now, I didn't start running with the expectations of, of doing a half marathon or a marathon or anything, but I'm like, okay, tell me what you have to do to get ready for a half marathon. So, you know, and I trained and, and I've since done several half marathons. So I, I don't shy away from challenges and things that are difficult. I think, in fact, I probably thrive on, on new experiences and challenges. Uh, I, I'm not, you know, a superwoman. So there are things that I, I cannot do. Like, I, I don't know, <laughs> can I fly a plane? Can I scuba dive? You know, there's some things I, I'm certain, I, you know, I, my brother's an engineer. I, you know, my math skills are, are not nearly as <laughs> advanced as his. But if presented with, you know, a challenge to do something that required me to dust off, you know, my calculus books, hey, I'm up for it if, if it's something that I want to do. Absolutely. When's the last time you were back in St. Louis in the area that you grew up in? Oh, I was there twice this year. So with my new book, Make It Rain, mm-hmm. I, I went on a like a 12-city book tour. And I actually was in St. Louis twice. I did two really, well, I did a bunch of events, but two were really cool. Uh, one, I went to Maryville University and did an event with their Women in Leadership group. 
And then when I went back the second time, which was uh, in June of this year, I did an event at the St. Louis Blues Museum. So oh, nice. there's a new blues mu- museum downtown. So we had a books and blues night. So there's oh, a blues nice. singer. Uh, and then after she, you know, did her thing, I got on the stage and, and just you know did a, a short uh, presentation, then did a book signing. So uh, I try to get but Actually, I'm going to be back in December uh, for a graduation and I'll probably do some local media and maybe a small book event then. Fantastic. And yeah, Kira, certainly uh, I want to be able to uh, yeah plug your book, Make It Rain, which is your third book, which is yes. amazing. What was your thought? I mean, every time you go back, does that inspire you? Every time you go back to be able to see what you, where you kind of started and, and how important well, is that to appreciate someone's journey? Well, I love St. Louis. I love the culture. I love the, you know, the value systems that, that permeate that community. I, I love my family and friends. I, I get energized every time I go back. Uh, I stopped, one of my stops when I was there in May was at my high school and St. Louis has its first female mayor. So we, I did an event with the mayor. She, she uh, rather than giving me the keys to the city, she uh, made the week that I was in town, you know, she deemed it a Reva Martin week in St. Louis. Oh, that's awesome. And that was so cool. And I got to uh, do a book event with the juniors uh, at my high school. And I gave away books to all the, the juniors. Uh, and it was just great. The school has gone through some renovations. So I got to tour it. I did a ton of local media, some of the talk radio shows and some of the local uh, news shows. So I I just love being able to talk and tell my story. I did an event at the uh, St. Louis Urban League. Uh, They have a program for young men and women who, you know, trying to get their lives back on track. So I I did a luncheon with about 50 of their participants in that program and, and talked to them about what my journey had been like. So I always try to find, you know, those kinds of unique opportunities to talk to folks where I can, you know, share my story and hopefully be an inspiration to someone who, you know, feels like they can't, you know, make it to that next level or maybe feel like they're stuck uh, in their current situation. Well, you certainly are being an incredible inspiration and your journey and success path is so inspiring. As I said at the beginning of the show, it's inspiring me just talking with you right now. So thank you for that. And certainly reading about everything that you accomplished is so inspiring in 30 years, in 40 years, when people look back on your life and everything that you've accomplished, what are the two or three things maybe that you want people to look back and say, wow, she was this, she was this. I want them to say she never gave up. She never stopped fighting to give a voice to the voiceless. Uh, and, and she never let her success separate her from her values or the people that she cared the most for. Wow. What do you consider to be, we talked about the preparation definition of success. What is your definition of success? I think success is one finding your what I call your authentic voice. And, and by that, I mean either your literal voice or, or your passion. I think in this world we live in today, I, I love social media and I'm on it all day, every day. But I see people who are impacted in a negative way by social media. They see the images of what appears to be, you know, people with perfect lives, perfect relationships, perfect bodies, perfect jobs, homes, cars, etc., And, you know, they let those images dictate to them what they should be doing, you know, or they start judging themselves by those images. Now, 
this this happened before social media, so I'm not mm-hmm. blaming it on social media, but it's just so much more available and prevalent today, you know, than it was before, you know, social media kind of exploded into everyone's lives. Uh, so for me, success is trying to, you know, shut out all of that noise and really going inward and finding for you what's important for you and you setting, you know, the, the standards for yourself. So, you know, whether that's and working in your community. If that makes you feel successful, then you're a success. Mm-hmm. Everybody doesn't have to be, you know, the leader, the president, the CEO, you know, the supermodel, the, you know, the A-list celebrity. You know, they're, they're going to be folks that aspire to that, but it's perfectly fine to be a well-adjusted adult living independently, you know, in a community raising your family or living single. Mm-hmm. So I try not to... Uh, you know, put artificial labels on, on how people judge success, because I think too many people are already influenced in, in ways that can cause grief and anguish and, you know, despair. And, you know, people start judging their lives by the lives of these images they see. And it can make a lot of people feel inadequate, mm-hmm. you know, easily, feel, you know, I'm not enough. I'm not doing enough. I'm not, you know, and people say that to me all the time. Oh, Reva, look at what you're doing. And I'm like, you know, I'm not doing enough. I'm like, no, 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 no. You shouldn't be looking at, you know, anything that I'm doing, you know, and judging yourself by it. Just like I shouldn't be looking at anything anybody else is doing. You're serving a you purpose. Know? Yeah. My, my pastor always says, you know, check the water bill before you, you know, think you want to, <laughs> you know, like the, your neighbor's lawn or you want to <laughs> own your neighbor's lawn. The grass may look greener, mm-hmm. but check the water bill. You know, I'm basically saying you don't know what people go through you know, to get what they have or what mm-hmm. sacrifices. And, and then maybe may not be the sacrifices that you want to make. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, it's so, always easier, always easier to look at it uh, than to do it and to be able to know what it's like to go through it. So yeah, don't always wish that. Well, Ariva, thank you so much. Again, I want to be able to say, go get her book, Make It Rain. It's available uh, on Amazon. It's available in bookstores. Certainly, thank you so much again for coming on and just being open. Uh, you know, I think Thanks. in today's world, like you said, social media, it's easy to just not be yourself, not be authentic. And you certainly were authentic. And thank you for that. Thank you, Michael. And keep doing what you're doing. Keep inspiring and giving out that great advice. I love your Monday's advice. <laughs> thank you very much. That's what it's all about. We're at, that's what this show is all about. We're here to be able to just spread some positivity in a world that needs it so badly. We're so thankful again to be here on the Popcorn Talk at the Popcorn Talk on Instagram and on Twitter. Again, follow Ariva on, at Ariva Martin on Facebook, on Twitter, and on Instagram. You can follow me after the show on uh, Instagram and on Twitter at the only MC. And certainly, we're also available on Apple iTunes. A lot of dedicated listeners on our podcast. We're so thankful for you guys. Make sure that you like, comment, rate, subscribe, tell a friend, so that we can continue spreading this positivity. We give this content for you guys for free. All we ask is just spread some love in the world around you. Thank you so much for joining us for another episode of I Could Never Be. We'll see you next time. From producers Maria Menounos, Kevin Undergaro, Phil Svitek, and the entire Popcorn Talk Network, we would like to thank you for tuning in. For questions or comments, be sure to visit PopcornTalk.com. I'm Sir Richard Wentworth, and this has been a presentation of the Popcorn Talk Network.